I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I am so excited to have today with me Toyo Washington, who is a 23-year-old college senior living in Boston, who has done so much incredible work already. Um, she's a gun and domestic violence advo uh, advocate. She's the founder of Black Boston and also of an education company, uh, Master's Tools. And so, uh, Toyo, I'm so grateful to have you here uh, to, to speak with us today. Thank you for joining us. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, you know, um, just for allowing me to come, you know, share the space and talk a little bit about, you know, the projects I've been working on, um, as well as the things that I've done. Um, it's, you know, I, I think about uh, where I was at, at age 23, or when I was a college senior, and I know very few people who have accomplished as much as you've accomplished. Can you talk a little bit about what formed what what got you started in the activism space and like what informed where you're at now um yeah i think that i guess i like to say that i kind of got into all of this by accident um because i didn't necessarily plan um to do any of this has kind of just been a part of who i am um i started this really early when i was 15 i joined um well, it was my first job. Um, I worked for um, the Boston Globe at this program called Teens Imprint, um, which did like a lot of like, news reporting and things like that. Um, and I am a writer as well. And so that was kind of how I started because I did my first article on colorism. Um, and at the time, that wasn't like a, a heavy topic in school or, or anything like that. Um, but it's kind of just been something that I've been, I guess, interested in. And so um, I decided to do that, but after kind of doing the research on the nature of colorism, um, just kind of the experiences of, you know, um, darker skinned black people, um, I got really interested in it and um, kind of everything that fell along with it. And so getting into high school, um, I started getting really into um, work that surrounded like racism, colorism, um, sexism, and all the things, um, which led me to work for the Boston Public Health Commission where I started doing domestic violence um, prevention work. And so that's kind of where it all started. Um, and then more recently, um, organizing the May 31st protests um, 2020 um, in Boston, um, you know, to stand in solidarity with Minnesota and every other, you know, city protesting um, the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, um, and everyone else, which once again, I didn't think that it would be as big. It actually ended up being the largest um, Black Lives Matter protest in Boston history. And so I, obviously, I didn't plan on it being that big. I didn't think that anyone was really paying attention to us. Um, you know, who's going to pay attention to, you know, a couple of college-age Black women um, in the city um, shouting where, but, you know, Boston's supposed to be the most progressive or, like, liberal city, you know, and so a lot of people have this idea that racism doesn't exist um, in Boston or that, like, it, it's not, it's a big deal, and they're comparing it to other cities and going, well, this isn't happening out here, but it's just like, but it can. Um, 
and never mind just like the cultural racism but there's a lot of systemic racism and i feel like that's something that always gets ignored a lot of people talk about you know well there's no confederate flags in windows or on bumper stickers or you know there are people chasing you into your house um and you know we're grateful for that but i think that we also need to recognize that i might go into a clinic and say that you know a part of my body hurts and i'm being denied you know appointments because they're like you're fine or i'm being followed around in stores um when i'm shopping because they're literally trained to follow black people in those stores um so i think that just kind of pointing out um systemic racism has always been my thing and then with the last year um and just kind of everyone's mindset of well it didn't happen out here um and kind of just shifting the narrative and understanding that like it's not about what happened it's about what could happen and it's about prevention right um because that's kind of the, the point of all of this and the point of us calling to defund the police because it's not about intervention at this point we don't want any more intervention because people are dying. We want prevention. We want it to not happen, um, period. Never mind, what do we do after it happens? Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, how I started and a little bit of the work I've been doing. Um, it's, it's interesting you mentioned about Boston because I live in Atlanta. And so I have grown up here. I, I left for about 10 years, but but you know, everyone thinks about the racist South, but I've also heard a lot of things specifically about Boston actually in the Northeast of the like well-intending white liberal who thinks that the problem is elsewhere, but that Boston is actually a really, really hard place to live for people of color. Is, is that your experience of it as well? Do you feel like it's any different from other cities in the North or, or is that just kind of? Um, so, well, I say, so I lived in Boston my whole life, so I don't know much about like, I guess the lived experiences of, you know, um, other states, but I will say that one, um, Boston is very segregated still, right? Um, like it's, it's, and it's not in a way that it's just like, oh, it's like a mixture. It's like literally like you cross certain borders and it's like, you know, what type of people you were going to run into. Um, and where I lived and where I've always lived has been a predominantly Black and Latinx area. Um, and because of that, you know, growing up, I wasn't around a lot of white people, even though Massachusetts, there's only about, it's about 13% um, of black people in Massachusetts. And for a lot of us, we don't even recognize that because of where we live and who we live around. All you do is see, you know, black and brown people. And so when people, when I leave, you know, the state and they go, oh, there's like black people out there. And I'm like, yeah, there's like black people out there. But then I, I look at the whole state in its entirety. I'm like, there's actually not, but it's because we live around so many people mm. um, that you don't get those, but you get the experiences when you go on the trains, um, you know, when you go into stores, um, when you go into schools, you know, like um, Boston public schools is predominantly black and Latinx but the teachers definitely don't represent the demographic. Um, and so it's definitely, um, I guess, a lot of experiences with the system rather than like a cultural thing. Like it's not um, a thing where you, I'm walking, you know, along the beach near my house and I'm, I'm nervous for that. Um, however, I might go to a clinic or the dentist or something like that. And that's when I'll start to experience that. So it's a whole lot more, um, in the system, whereas like, you know, in the South, it's kind of, you know, a bit of both, um, right? So it's it's everything. So I would definitely say, I wouldn't, I don't think that I had like a hard time growing up, you know, in terms of 
once again, cultural racism, um, but systemic, you know, oppression has, has been a, a very heavy thing. Um, and even growing up and not even recognizing how certain things um, within the system, you know, have reinforced that. Um, and growing up and, and realizing now after learning so much now, oh, I can't believe that this happened. You know, when I was in 11th grade, they cut our budget by $50 million um, to the point where we only could take math, you know, science, history, you know, in English, like our, our four core classes, we couldn't do um, art or theater or, or anything else. Um, and at the time, I didn't think, oh, this is like racism. You know, I didn't, I didn't think that. I just thought like, they like suck. They're like taking away all our money. But I, I didn't think about it that way, you know, until getting older and kind of understanding how the system works. Yeah. I, I'm curious about um, what you were saying led, leads me a little bit to think about internalized racism and at what point you kind of realized like what you're saying, like what led you to realize this isn't normal, this isn't what it's supposed to be, this is the system and, and, and maybe your process on, on um, understanding more about how the system affects black and brown folks differently. Mm -hmm. um, I guess because it's like I've, you know, we, we grew up and we're taught in schools like, you know, MLK had a dream and white people and him held hands in the end. Like that's, that's literally how they go about it. Yeah. Um, and they don't really get deep into it. I think that my, I guess my first experiences with like being silenced and like me just understanding that like racism is a clear issue. Um, I think I was in high school and I, um, I, I got in trouble for arguing with the teacher because he was talking about Christopher Columbus. And like, I was like, this, none of this makes sense. Um, and it became a whole thing where it's like, you're just sucked in the class because, you know, whatever, like, this is, this is what I have to teach, but it's just like, but why, you know, like if, if you know, um, that th this isn't true, then why are we even talking about it? Um, and just like the understanding of like me being silenced and me being told like, well, it is what it is. Like, you just need to sit in your seat and like be quiet. Um, I kind of realized like, no. Okay. So clearly it, it's a problem because, if, if it wasn't a problem, then you would let me speak. And so I think that that is kind of where I got into, I want to learn more and I started doing my, my own stuff. And um, I come from, you know, my dad's side, I come from a history of teachers. And so that um, really, cause you know, I, I got books and stuff for, for Christmas and, and birthdays. I, I wasn't getting toys. So I was yeah. kind of like, go read um, and go educate yourself. Um, and so, you know, I did, and that it's kind of how I really got into that stuff. Um, and then kind of just seeing Boston's being very gentrified right now, um, to the point where it's starting to look like a mini New York, um, going downtown Boston. I like, I look at the stairs and it just reminds me of New York and noticing specifically where they place these new luxury buildings, um, became something interesting to me because they'll place them right by the train stations. Um, and at first I thought, well, why would you want to live next to the train station? It's loud, you can hear the trains behind you and all this stuff. But then I started to think that's because these white people in these buildings don't want to interact with us. They're literally, you have the luxury buildings, you have, and then across the street is the projects, right? And all where all these luxury buildings are. These luxury buildings are not in suburban areas where it's just predominantly white people. These buildings are literally 
in predominantly um, black and brown areas. And so I was wondering why are they doing that? Like why are they putting them in the worst locations possible, right in front of the train station and it's so loud. But I started to realize it's because they don't want to interact with us. Um, and I, I actually worked at a star market right next to one of the newest buildings. Um, and I, I watched how those people treated me um, who lived in the buildings. Um, and so just kind of seeing that, and then I realized they put all these buildings in front of train stations and that's because they don't want to interact with the people. So they want to get on the train so they can go downtown Boston and work and go back home. And they don't have to interact with us. They don't have to walk through the projects. They don't have to see, you know, the black and brown people in the area. They have everything that they need right there and their transportation right there. Um, and then I started reading into it and everything just started making sense. And um, by that point, it's like I was learning to go into college. And so I'm like, wow, this is messed up. Um, and so I decided to major in sociology because then I, I wanted to study all these different groups and I, I wanted to study all these different things that were going on because I've always had the questions and a lot of people always had the questions, but nobody had the answers. Um, and, you know, I got to college and, and that's where I started to learn them. What were some of the books that you read when on your journey of what you know figuring out more more behind the scenes of what was going on in the systemic nature of the racism what are some of the books that were really informative for you um i think so i'll start off with the i took a class um the sociology of law um class my freshman year um, and that's the class that really made me want to declare my major because i had went in undecided um and it was this, this book the color of law um and it talks um just all about you know um kind of that process like that judicial process as well as just um the tactics they use like talking about you know systemic racism talking about um redlining talking about you know sundown towns and you know these efforts to um stop you know black people from buying in their neighborhoods or um you know, like the stuff that that's on deeds and, you know, just all these these different things. Um, and that, I guess, kind of started it because I, I just got really interested in that book. Um, and then, yeah, I, I started getting into, you know, feminist theory, Black feminist theory. So I started reading um, a lot of Audre Lorde. Um, and that's actually how I, I came up with my game company's name, The Master's Tools, because she's my favorite social theorist. Um, and the theory is the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Um, and so I started reading a lot of Audre Lorde. I started reading a lot of Bell Hooks, um, Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, these are you people, I'm saying a lot of Black feminists um, because that, that has been my thing as well. Um, education and um, feminism specifically, I'm talking about like womanism, um, Black feminism and things like that. Um, what other books did I read? Kimberly Crenshaw is an, one of the originators of critical race theory from what so I she, remember. Um, yeah, so she does a lot of stuff on critical race theory. Um, she's the one who coined the term intersectionality. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I, I read a lot of, you know, her stuff. Um, you know, I got to talk about um, and learn more about um, the new Jim Crow, um, which has been a, re a really popular book, um, you know, in college and I guess just throughout the last um, year, because I have been like, you know, seeing a lot of stuff, um, you know, reading stuff about, you know, like Angela Davis. Um, who else I'm trying to think? Um, That's great. No, yeah, you don't have to take I'm like, 
I'm like I'm trying to figure out because there's just there's just so many um different books um but I'm only really naming authors um, I would say um I, I like algorithms of oppression um sorry I can't even say who who wrote what <laughs> that's okay no I think you know I think what's important is that there's a lot of people who are listening who are white or black or other races who like want to know what what good books there are to read um, and how to better inform ourselves. And there are a few out there that kind of everyone's heard of. And these are a lot that maybe people haven't heard of. So this is, this is, that's a great, um, um, what'd you say? It was algorithms of. Algorithms of oppression. Of oppression. Um, thank you. This is a wonderful, a wonderful list and um, incredible authors uh, as well. Can you tell us about, or tell me about Black Boston and, and what that is and, um, how you came to create it and form it. Um, sure. So Black Boston um, is a nonprofit that myself um, and another Black woman in the city founded. Um, it's another thing that I guess I would say I founded by accident um, because we, it was myself, um, my co-founder, and one other Black woman who actually doesn't live in Boston, but she was um, here around the time of the protest. We had seen, you know, a tweet that was like, oh, at least Boston's like not like racist, like, you know, um, I forgot what, what city they compared it to, but we were like, what are you talking about? Like, that is not true. Um, and that started from Black Twitter, which is why we named it Black Boston. So they had um, made that tweet and then we had went into like, there's different forms of racism, you know, we have like cultural racism, you know, we have internalized racism, institutional racism, like there's these different forms of racism. Um, and Boston is more systemically racist. And so after doing that in, you know, in the midst of everything going on, you know, with all these different protests happening across the country, um, there were no Boston protests. And we're like, we need to stand in solidarity with everyone else because it doesn't matter if it didn't happen out here, it can. Um, and so we had organized a protest and, you know, people started contacting us. Black Lives Matter Boston started contacting us. The NAACP started contacting us because they're like, who are y'all? Because, um, you know, there's, there's people in the city who, who do the whole grassroots community organizing thing and they never heard of us. And so they're like, who are y'all? And we're like, we're just some, you know, college age women who wanna um, do a protest. And they're like, there's gonna be like three to 7,000 people at your protest. Um, and we're like, wow, like we didn't think. And then it says that there's gonna be like 7,000 to 10,000 people at your protest. And they were like, wow. And then there ended up being like 25,000 people mm -hmm. there. Um, and we, you know, at the time, it wasn't like something that we decided like we're going to do this and continue. It was kind of something that's like we need to stand in solidarity with Minnesota and everyone else. And so we marched, um, you know, and we listed our demands because we wanted to get the attention of politicians because ultimately they are, are who we are talking to, um, you know. And so after doing that, um, you know, and trying to take time to collect ourselves, there are so many people contacting us and saying like, okay, well, what's next? What are you doing now? Who are you guys? Are you are you guys going to continue? Like, what's going on? This is needed. We need something like this. Um, and at first, we're kind of just like, why do you need us? Like, what are we? We're, why are we special? Like, what are we doing? But it was more of, I guess, um, the young people that were protesting that, I guess, was the, the biggest thing um, for us because this was the first time that we really got our generation politically engaged. Um, you know, it's, it's very hard. Um, to do that because of the way, you know, the language, you know, was put out there. And just like, even when they throw out bills and policies and all these different things and people don't understand them because they do it on purpose. They, you know, 
put out certain things on purpose and say it in a way that certain people don't understand, you know, they don't make it accessible um, to everyone, especially the communities that they're hurting. Um, they don't do that. And so we kind of decided like we do want to continue on with this. Um, and so we decided to keep, you know, the name Black Boston because we had made Instagram and Twitter so that we can go live during the protest for people, you know, who couldn't be there because um, of the pandemic. And after making the accounts, we had gained like 2,000 followers that night alone uh -huh. and everyone contacting us and saying like, hey, like, what's next? Like, we, we want to know what's next. Um, are politicians reaching out to you yet? Like, what's going on? Like, we, we want to know. And so we kind of decided we one, wanted to continue with the political advocacy and um, start meeting with these elected officials because it's like, you know, they heard us. Um, we decided to create a curriculum, you know, um, and so we have two different curriculums at the moment. We built um, several different workshops um, on these different issues and just issues that affect Black people. Um, and so we have an educational programming team and then we also have, you know, a mental health um, team where we kind of discuss like, one that like mental health in the black community becomes non-existent and people ignore it um and they kind of think like my, my life is hard and we're gonna just push through this and so we wanted to kind of um bring in that component because with all this work it is really detrimental to your mental health you know um waking up every morning and, and seeing the new viral tweet of someone else you know being murdered by the police it it's detrimental to your mental health and so we decided to make a mental health team and that is kind of just how we formed um, Black Boston by thinking about what are the needs um, of the community, um, specifically the young Black community, um, and, and how could we help? And that's kind of how it started. Wow. So how do you, okay, so we're gonna get to master's tools, but how do you balance all this and schoolwork? Because it just feels like everything that you're doing would be a full-time job for one person. Like, you know one person's full-time job working with many people but you're doing all of this how do you how do you take care of yourself and how do you how do you balance this out um with school and and your activism um i would say at, at first i did a very terrible job <laughs> the, the fall was the fall was very hard and i think that sometimes when we get passionate about something we feel like i i want to do this we also don't recognize that it's like you still need to take breaks um and i would kind of at first set my schedule up in a way that's like all right i i did what i need to do and now my free time i'm gonna work on my games or i'm gonna work on black boston but it's like i had to understand that like you literally need to set time aside to do nothing like absolutely nothing um, and so I've been better at that. I've been better at dedicating like, okay, Saturdays, I'm not doing anything. I'm not checking any emails. My favorite word today is no, like I'm just, <laughs> I love that. I'm going to, you know, enjoy myself and, and enjoy whatever I have planned that has nothing to do with work or activism or, or anything like that. And I think that it, it gets hard because sometimes people look to you to see, you know, what, what is going on or like, I need help with something or even when the you know incident happened at the Capitol, my phone was it was the day before my birthday and I was doing like a photo shoot and I had so many people contacting me and I'm like, what do you want me to do? Like go to DC? Like I can't, I don't know what to do. Um, and that becomes hard because I think that sometimes other people look to you um as like someone to, to help or someone to talk to or whatever. Um and then you become so available for everyone else that you're not available for yourself anymore. Yeah. And so 
I had to really start learning how to say no, how to say like I'm busy. Um, I had to learn how to explain that me being busy um, or me being free does um, not mean that I'm available. Me not being busy does not mean that I'm available because I think that that's something that people also don't recognize. If you say you're free, that means that you're available, but you're yeah. not. It just means I'm not busy. I don't mm -hmm. have anything to do right now, but me not having anything to do does not mean that I'm going to decide to pick up something to do. Um, and so, yeah, it really came down to just learning how to say that, learning how to express that and taking time for me and just taking a step back from things. Oh my gosh. So I feel like you're 23 and you have like the answers to the questions that people spend their whole lives trying to figure out is, is the boundaries and taking care of themselves. It's amazing that you've already learned to at least aspire towards striking that balance. And I think there's so much in white supremacy culture that wants us to have that sense of urgency and that like, it's all got to be done now or five minutes ago when we have to do it and, and, and being very intentional with not replicating that in your, in your work culture, that is incredible. And it's hard to fight it because it's the culture, but um, that's the example that you're setting. And I think that's incredible. Thank you. We definitely, and we, we try to set that. We have about um, 18 black Boston members. So we had opened it up, you know, um, to other people who kind of wanted to volunteer. Um, like we officially got our nonprofit status. However, we don't have funding. And so that is kind of, what we are working on right now, but um, we have a, a few, you know, volunteers and, you know, we get on the Zoom calls and we talk about like, what are we planning to do next and things, but we also kind of leave space to be able to talk about that stuff because, you know, it gets really hard. Like people sending you DMs all the time, like, oh my gosh, this is happening. Oh my goodness, you know? Um, and you just need a space to just relax. You know, sometimes we even schedule like, who wants to cry? Let's just cry on this call because, it, you know, we, we hold a lot of stuff in and I even sometimes think like, I'm going to go cry at four, but at 4.30, I have a meeting. So I need to relax. And I think that um, just recognizing that, that's when I kind of realized that like, you don't even have time to mourn because you're doing all this different stuff. Um, and so I, I had to recognize that for myself and I had to recognize that for my team because I'm like, I'm sure um, what I'm experiencing, a lot of people are experiencing. Um, I'm just kind of letting, letting the, um, the impact of what you just said wash over me a little bit. Um, and for everyone listening, I'm sure they're just like, holy crap, this woman is amazing. Um, and the, yeah, I don't, I don't, there's not even any words that, that I can say. I just want to let what you said sink in. Um, can we talk a little bit about master's tools and what that is and uh, how that came about? Um, yeah, so um, the Master Tools is my game company um, that is centered around um, teaching and having conversations about systems of oppression. Um, and so my first game card, Meet the Colonizers, is um, literally just that. It is a game um, that tells the dairy stories of minoritized communities um, through those voices instead of, you know, the white supremacist narrative um, that, you know, is present in textbooks and, and what we learn in school um, and things like that. And it also calls out and exposes American systems and heroes and ideas because I think that that um, is something that gets ignored. You know, even in history books, um, the narrative is either changed to make something sound like a good thing or something is completely left out. Like things like Christopher Columbus never even stepped foot, you know, on American soil, but 
for some reason we have a Columbus Day, you know, and for some reason we're we're being taught about him, like he discovered America. Um, and so little things like that, I feel, are important to point out um, because in order, you know, to shift the narrative and, and change the system, we have to know what, what it's about. Um, and so, yeah, that is uh, my first card game, but that is kind of, I guess, the tone of all the games that, like, I'm going to be releasing. I am releasing another game in June. Um, but I guess how I decided to create them, one, I've always just loved learning games um, and games that have like a, a educational spin. Um, when I was younger, um, I was kept back when I was in the third grade and it was because of my math. Um, and the year that I repeated, I started playing first in math um, on this website, like first in math. And I ended up becoming advanced, you know, in math because I used to play it so much at school that I started playing it at home. Mm -hmm. And I just enjoyed it so much because I've always just been a competitive person. Um, that that's that's how I learned math and so I always loved learning games after that and just with I have a lot of younger siblings and just after watching like what the pandemic has done to parents and their children so like having to do virtual school um parents not being able to help their kids with virtual school because they have to go to work because so many people especially in marginalized communities are essential workers um and just seeing that and then everything that was going on um with police brutality and everything just kind of made me think like, how can I find a way to start conversations um, about these issues in a way that's one, um, not as draining, you know, like as let's do lectures and PowerPoints, you know, it's not as tedious um, and repetitive, but also like in a way that people are, are gonna be invested in the conversation and, and wanna learn. Um, and so I kind of thought about those games and I was actually creating a workshop um, for students um, that I mentored and I was doing a workshop on the school to prison pipeline and I had noticed that the way I kind of made the the workshop if I had changed the formatting a little bit it could be a game um, and so that's what I had did and then I found myself like a I think a week or two later making tea and I thought about another game idea and so I started working on that and then it started just becoming like me making games over the spring and summer um coming up with the content doing the research um trying to put it um in a way that you know would be fun and something that people could enjoy um and then i just decided to you know turn it into a game company because at that point i already had like a few games um or game ideas that i wanted to get out there and so i like spent you know the remainder of 2020 doing all of that um and coming up this company huh <laughs> it's just so impressive it's like I'm making a workshop it's going to be a game and now I have a game company um that's incredible that you can like it's a gift to be able to take those ideas and put those into actually action okay so two questions I guess my first question is how do you balance fun with anti-racism how do you allow people to have fun learning about that? If that makes sense, like how, how, do, how do you present it in a way that people feel like they can enjoy themselves? Does that? Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. And I think that a lot of people ask, or um, even some people, you know, are concerned because they're like, well, what if they like take it as a joke or like whatever? Yeah. Um, and I think, well, one, so something that I've noticed like in general, you know, throughout history, like, minoritized communities we use music we use games like we use these things um 
to make us feel better, you know, about the thing. I, my, my family, we joke about a lot of things that are not funny because it takes a little bit of, you know, the, the trauma away from it. It takes a, a little bit of just the way we're feeling about it away from it. Um, but also um, the way you present things um, in what, what part of it is fun or funny or whatever it is, I think is the most important part. So for example, with um, my game with Meet the Colonizers, um, one of the things I did is like, you only have 30 seconds to answer the question, right? Um, and so that becomes a thing where people are like, dang, I gotta get the answer right right away, right? Um, no matter what it is, I, I gotta get the answer right. Um, and it, it makes it competitive. And so that's one way that's like they're having fun um, through learning. Cause it's kind of like playing like Jeopardy, like it's like a trivia game, you know? Um, and then also the way I presented the questions um, is something that people have found to be like the most fun, right? Um, so like, for example, um, my question um, about kind of the feminist movement, it was like, the question was, um, it's a movement framed to empower women, but it's just white supremacy with pink glitter. Um, and so a lot of people find that funny because it's like, this is, yeah, this is kind of what it is. Right. Um, and so presenting it in the way that it's like, you're learning and you're pointing out the issues within that system. Um, but it's also real life and just, just being authentic about like how you feel, um, and having these conversations. Cause these are conversations and these are things that people say in real life. Like it's not something, um, which is also something that I enjoy, rather than it be a big corporation trying to, you know, try to create something and tell it in the narrative of, of someone that they're, you know, not. And so I think that that is kind of where I find the balance and just understanding, like, how I was raised, the community that I'm in, and, like, how we feel and, and things like that, um, and incorporating a lot of myself into my games rather than just um, putting out information, because you can it's easy to just put out information um but it's how you do it that's going to change if it's digestible or not and if people are going to want to be interested in it or not because a lot of people don't want to do learning games you know they don't want to they don't want to play um yeah i don't even remember the last time i had bought a card game before you know coming up with this and so a lot of people don't want to do this stuff so it's important to kind of just find that balance by like thinking about you your experiences and, and putting yourself into your work that's incredible. What's the next, so you, is, are you able to talk about the one that's coming out next or is it still, is it still in secret mode? Um, so for, for the most part, it is in secret mode, but I will say that um, I'll be releasing it in June and this game is going to touch more on um, classism, you know, and um, the, the struggles for, um, minoritized communities to obtain wealth, um, whether that, you know, is working class white people, um, you know, or black people, just kind of the struggles for them to obtain wealth um, versus people who were born, you know, into wealth. So that is kind of um, what the game will be about. I can't say too much, because um, I, I do like to keep it as a surprise. Um, but yeah, that is the, the theme of the game. Awesome. Okay, so, um... I, I want, I'm like, I'm, I'm finding myself curious about what comes up for you after graduation, but I know that I remember as a college student and people be like, what's after graduation or what are you going to do? I'd love to hear like how you might be, and maybe after graduation, you're going to spend two months laughing, you know, maybe after graduation, you're going to take time off. I'd love to hear um, what's on the horizon for you. Um, yeah. So I think that 
right now I'm just kind of one focusing on like just getting a job that I can apply all the work that I've done um and the work that I wanted to do because you know um up until a year ago, you know, like Black Boston and the Master's students weren't a thing. Like I was gonna go, I was actually gonna go into higher education um, because I wanted to be like a, a chief diversity officer um, mm -hmm. or something at a university. So actually implementing policies, um, reallocating funds, you know, to the students on campus that needed more, like things like that. I was gonna be doing that work because I've always kind of just been into that work, as I said. Um, but then after, you know, the creation of Black Boston in, in these games, like I kind of realized um, I can have a much larger impact. You know, I can go beyond a local level. I can go in a national level, you know, I can do a global level. I can I can do more. And I remember um, two of my favorite professors actually telling me when I had said, I want to go to grad school for higher education. And they're just like, you can do so much more than that. Like you can, and like at the time I'm like, no, but like, that's what I want to do. You know, like I can, I can like make an impact at a university like that. That was kind of in my head, but they're like, no, like we really encourage you to think bigger because you just have potential to, to do more. Um, and now I really appreciate that conversation because at the time I felt like, um, you know, like they're, they're like trying to get me to change, you know, what I want to do. But now I, I totally understand because I kind of stepped into it myself and realized like, I want to go beyond Boston, you know? Um, and you know, Boston's always gonna be my home and it's it's something very important to me. Um, but I wanna make a larger impact than that. Um, and so after graduation, of course, you know, I'm gonna, you know, find a job um, and continue to build Black Boston, continue to try to get Black Boston funded um, so that we can do a lot of the other great work that we've been planning to do with it. Um, and also expand my game company and, and you know, get that out there eventually you know even add people to my team to help me create these games and and do these things um so yeah long term i would say just building both of those um and, and making them as big you know as possible um but short term just finding a job that that i enjoy and, and i don't mind going to from nine to five <laughs> that's <laughs> i love that i love that your mentors encourage you to think big uh, because I feel like a lot of my black friends and colleagues have told me these really horrible stories of them wanting to go to medical school and then being like, eh, maybe you shouldn't is generally white men. I think that we're giving them this advice of you don't have the grades or maybe you should be a nurse or, and nursing is great, of course, also, but, but I love that you were encouraged to expand your wildest dreams, you know, and, and go even beyond that. Yeah, definitely. I would say because these are two college professors and this was my junior year um, of college. But I will definitely say in high school, that was definitely the undertone of like, um, I remember like, you know, teachers and counselors and things like pretty much telling all the students like, you should go to like a community college, like you should start there first. And of course, you know, there's nothing wrong with community college, but it was very much the tone of the conversation that it was more like, you probably can't even get into a four-year school like that or even if you do like you can't get into an ivy league like there was no apply you know i had um i had almost a perfect you know gpa in high school and nobody said go to apply to harvard or princeton or you know like it was just like eh, like you try a state school like you know that was kind of the 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 push um you know for everyone at the school like you can't go to a four-year school or if you do like it's not going to be all that 
um, you're, you're going to graduate and you're going to get student loans because that was a huge thing. They really made sure to let us know that we would be in debt. Like they, yeah, you're like going to be in debt and you're going to struggle and your life is going to be hard. Like that was definitely in high school, um, the, the tone of the, the conversations, but getting into college and kind of just meeting people that I wanted to be a support system rather than what they were offering to me as a support system yeah. um, definitely changed a lot. It's, it's, it's for any white people listening, um, if you take some time to learn about or, or have conversations about the internalized messages of superiority and inferiority that are, that are implanted or given to people or um, uh, internalized uh, in our society is astounding, you know, and, and not news to, to people who have to, um, experience that. Uh, so thank you for sharing that with me. And I'm glad that you were able to create the mentorship and, and get, you know, get, find that space where you were encouraged. Um, how can people follow you and support you? And you said that Black Boston is now officially nonprofit status. Can people donate? Can, like all the things, where can we buy your games? All of it. Um, yes. So um, for my games, you can get them on themasterstools.com. Um, for Black Boston, people can donate. Um, they could do like uh, one-time donations. We have set it up in a way like if you want to do like uh, monthly or quarterly or whatever um, donations, you can find us on blackboston.org. Um, and yeah, my my personals, um, aspiring tea um, on everything. So um, yeah, that that is how you can find me. Um, or if you go on the websites um, that I just listed, you can also find me that way. Awesome, that's so exciting. Um, there's so so many great projects that you're working on, and I think people are going to be really excited. I want to start giving, I want to start giving Meet the Colonizers to everyone I know for <laughs> for gifts. And do you have a target audience for that, or is that kind of um, for every for anybody who's interested in learning? So I think in general, like the, these issues affect people. So anybody, you know, should want to get it. But I would definitely say one, um, just the tone, you know, of the games and the conversation is a lot more progressive. Um, I don't see conservatives playing this game and having fun with it. Um, <laughs> I think that, of course, once again, it's important for everyone to play, but I definitely just the language and kind of the way I explain things, um, you know, millennials, Generation Z, um, younger generations, I think, would fit, you know, from this game, because I've also come to the conclusion that older generations, like, while there's a lot of unlearning going on, and there's a lot of people who do agree with what we, you know, we are saying, there's also a lot of people, they're not a lost cause, but it's just like, they kind of made their mind up, and they said, like, this is just the way things are, mm -hmm. um, no matter what race you are, they kind of just, that's just the way it is, and like, whatever, um, and so there's really no point of trying to change their mind um, and ultimately is up to the new generation um, to change the things because we are the future doctors, lawyers, politicians and things. And so it's really important for them to learn more than anything. Okay. Um, so they are my audience. That's amazing. Well, Toyal, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me um, uh, out of all the work that you're doing and graduations coming up next month sometime? Yes, I should put a calendar on my phone with a countdown because I am so ready. Um, oh, yeah. so. <laughs>
congratulations uh, in, in advance and for everything that you've done and for everything that, that is still to come for you. Um, and I'll put links to all of, all of the, um, all the websites and social media. Did you tell me social media? Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, for Instagram, for the master's tools, it's the masters.tools okay. on Instagram. And for Black Boston, it's Black Boston 2020 on Instagram and okay. Twitter. Perfect. All right. So everyone, that, that will all be in the show notes as well. Um, Toyle Washington, thank you again for being the human that you are and for um, spending an hour of your time with me. I'm, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for, you know, having me and, and letting me use this platform um, to share my story. Wonderful. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.